This is WGN Radio. Here's Michael Miller, Associate Professor of Economics at DePaul University on the Trust Business Lunch, speaking to us long distance today. Michael, thanks for giving us some of your time. How are you? I'm doing very well and enjoying 70-degree weather. You want to tell everybody where you are? I'm in a little kingdom in, a, in the Arabian Gulf called Bahrain, and I'm teaching in one of – DePaul has an MBA program on the island – and uh, so I'm enjoying teaching um, a bunch of Bahrainis all about macroeconomics. From an American perspective, are they interested in where you're from, or is it all the same everywhere? Well, the, the theories are all the same, uh, because the theory we, want, we believe uh, applies no matter where. But I uh, have been uh, teaching over here uh, off and on since 2004, and I have a, a a large database of Bahraini data, and uh, so it, it's from a Bahraini experience, uh, perspective in terms of the data, uh, with the expect- with the exception of the uh, monetary policy, because uh, Bahrain has what is called a pegged currency, which means they peg their their dinar to our dollar, and therefore the Federal Reserve is essentially their central bank. So we we look at the uh, Federal Reserve as if it's the Bahraini Bank, because anything the Fed does, the Bahraini banks have to do. It's not why I called, but just while we're talking about that, and then we'll talk about uh, the American side for a moment. But is it also the fact that in certain countries of the world, they say, okay, we're going to embrace capitalism, but they just don't get it? I don't know. Maybe we get it wrong. But um, Mm -hmm. certainly Russia, certainly China, um, Hong Kong, other parts of the world just have a different view of what capitalism looks like. How is it there? Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, you know, if you were to take all of the Arab-dominant countries in the world, uh, Bahrain happens to be the most economically free country among all the Arab countries. And if you compare it to other countries in the world in general, it ranks relatively high because it is very receptive to uh, outside workers, outside ideas, uh, outside investment. And uh, the tax structure is not that onerous on people that do invest here. So it's a, it's a relatively free society when it comes to the economy. Do they have uh, oil largesse? Does that sort of bolster everything there? Well, it does. And there's not a whole lot of oil in the ground. It's, it's kind of shared, so to speak, with Saudi Arabia. And uh, what happens is that one reason they can have such low taxes is because there's almost like a social compact between the people and the government in that the government uh, takes care of mining and pulling out all of the oil and, and natural gas and energy and the proceeds that go that come from that fund 80% or 90% of the government spending so it is it is the basis through which they they in a sense run the country um so the people themselves don't own the oil but the people through their government do and and uh and therefore they can have extremely low taxes in general what does that mean extremely low taxes well, they only pay a couple percent. Uh, they pay some uh, VAT taxes on, on some of the stuff that they buy. But in terms of an income tax, it's not very high if there's any at all. And uh, <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it, it, there's not a lot of, of it, it, like you say, if, if you look at all government revenue, since it's uh, there is only one level of government, that's the, the federal government of Bahrain, 80 to 82 percent of all the money comes from oil and energy, and there's a bunch they get then from uh, fees that they pay for people to use the airport, 
and importation fees and things like that. So the amount that comes from actual taxation that you and I would know, like sales taxes and income taxes and so forth, is uh, I'll, I'll use the word minimal. It's absolutely minimal for the Bahrainis themselves. Michael Miller is an economist at DePaul University who is teaching in Bahrain as part of a program DePaul has over there. And he said, yeah, I'll take your call, although it's the evening where he is now, uh, to talk to us just about the U.S. economy right now, about gross domestic product, about things like that. I'm going to take a commercial break in a minute, Michael, but get us started. What What's on your mind yeah. today? Well, you see, that that's the, the, the big contrast, as, as we've mentioned before, is that um, we have the strongest labor market almost in history. So when Mr. Biden talks about that the labor market is doing really well, if you use the general and normal measures of labor activity, the unemployment rate, the jobs created and so forth, this economy is essentially second to none in the world and second to none in the history of our own country. But when you look at production and housing and so forth, you see it's almost like a, a contrast that should not exist. Uh, that that you could have such a, a booming labor market with production not being not going all that well, and then of course there's always the the problem of inflation that uh, is is eating away slowly at the uh, incomes of people. So we have we have it's almost like a Jekyll and Hyde economy having the, the these problems, but at the same time being able to say that we have a labor market second to none. Located in Bahrain right now is Michael Miller, the Associate Professor of Economics at DePaul University, teaching students over there this semester, but always been a big help to us here. So, Mike, before the break, I was asking you, what number matters? You, you said it's a Jekyll and Hyde economy. Uh, what's the most yeah, important you know, part um, of that? I think the the answer almost has to be to ask the public, what is it that's on their mind? And I, I think there's no doubt that people have this concern, have a concern, and it's well-founded about the, the disease in an economy called inflation, which just eats away at every household's ability to buy things. And, and, and you're reminded of it almost every time you go to the store or you go get gasoline or whatever, that the, this inflation exists. So... In terms of a, a policy or a, a focus, what, what has to be focused upon it by policymakers, and, and that's mainly the Federal Reserve, is they need to keep getting uh, inflation under control. Now, see, the hope in the Jekyll Hyde situation is that the Fed will be able to do this, to, to come up with a contractionary monetary policy that will drive inflation further towards the target of 2%, without necessarily destroying the labor market. And if they can pull that off, that will be that'll be magic. And that'll be and there are some economists who are, are still forecasting that this is going to happen, that growth will continue to be positive, though not very high, while the Fed fights inflation. And we will all be better off because we'll we'll have the jobs and we'll and we'll finally have incomes that aren't being eaten away by continuing uh, problems of inflation. So the Fed's job is is clear. It has to fight the inflation, and it should try to do so without driving the economy into a recession. Did you tell Producer P what we need is either a more efficient workforce or more people working? Oh, sure. Uh, there's one thing. Uh, if you wanted to, if you were to ask me about any country, the United States, Bahrain, whatever, where will that country be in 10 years? 
if you can give me three numbers, I can kind of come up with an answer. And that is, uh, what will be happening to its labor force? Will there be more people available to work? How smart will they work, which is called productivity, how much output you can create per hour? And then are they willing to work harder or longer if necessary to raise output? So any economy, if like I say, you give me those three numbers, uh, we can come up with some kind of a measure of how strong an economy can be over time. And that's why, for example, many countries that grow are countries that allow for immigration. Because in most countries of the world, we see that fertility is falling, that people are having few ba- fewer babies, not all throughout the world, but many places, which means your labor force will not grow as fast. And therefore, the only way to keep growing quickly is to come up with labor, maybe from an outside source, and that's where immigration would come in. For example, here in Bahrain, uh, I, I know this number, and I'm not misspeaking, 75% of all the workers in Bahrain are expats, are from outside the country. And, it, and the country is a relatively rich country, in part because they bring in all these people and are willing to have them do this work and generate the output. Were they you know, xenophobic and not willing to let people come in, this would still be a very small and not a very prosperous country. And uh, so we, we have more than sufficient evidence that immigration over, say, the past 150 years on net has been very positive because it adds, uh, it adds to the size of the labor force, which gives us more potential. And immigrants often come in with new ideas that raise our productivity, that raise our output. Um, there's some new research that's showing that immigrants outperform domestic Americans in terms of patent creation and um, and the quality of those patents. So uh, of, um, of inventors, about 16% of them are, are immigrants, but that 16% immigrants creates almost 25% of all the patents in the United States. Hmm. That adds to the vi- vitality of the American economy, and that's why so many people wish to to embrace legal immigration of people coming in and, and adding to the country. The Olympic infrastructure would not have been built were it not for expats working to actually create those stadiums, et cetera, not without some controversy, I might add. But oh, here I, in the United, I agree. Here in the United States, with unemployment at about 3%, I don't know how we're going to get more people to work unless we do actually import more people. I mean, where else are we going to get get these folks? We're not, because you and I did not procreate in the same rate that our fathers and and mothers did. So you look at the average family size, it's decreased over the decades. And therefore, uh, you know, I'm baby booming, and uh, I think you are late baby boom, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, you know, someday we're going to retire, but we will replace ourselves with fewer people than are are retiring. And if we want growth to continue, we have to be willing to allow people to come in who are uh, able to do the work. And this essentially is going to be immigrants. And um, we just, you know, there's always that question of do they come through the front door or do they slide in uh, illegally? But but in general, what you're going to see is that immigration is going to have this positive effect upon the labor force and upon productivity 
both of which will raise the long-run potential of the uh, American economy. I saw the story, uh, was it this week or last, that China is easing its one-child policy. Imagine that, China encouraging people to have more kids for some of the same reasons. But if we can't get enough people to come into the country, or if we don't produce enough people, can we just make up for it on the productivity side? Yes. There's only one, it's exactly correct, or we could work longer hours, which we don't want to do. It's just that adding to productivity is hard. It's easy, like when you become a China or a South Korea or whatever, 30 years ago, all they, they didn't have to come up with new ideas. They just took hours. They borrowed hours or bought hours, and, and, and therefore, they were able to raise productivity very quickly and grow 13 14% a year, all because of these productivity gains. But what you'll see is that places like China, South Korea, and so forth, they now grow at roughly the same rate as the United States and and Europe because coming up with new ideas that have a major effect upon productivity is really hard. Uh, The last time we did it was um, was during the 1990s when we we introduced uh, uh, laptop computers and stuff into almost everyday life, and that dramatically increased the productivity of American workers. But we're not sure where the next one will come from. There will be something out there. But, yes, if we're not going to have the babies, we need to make up the difference with productivity if we wish to continue to grow. How does this factor in? Um, the economy is uh, – industries are changing. We're going from fossil fuels maybe to, to green technology. Mm-hmm. And so while coal miners say – shake their fists at – Uh, new industries or ask the politicians to preserve their industries, Um, maybe the economy will grow because we'll shift to new kinds of technology. That has has always been the case, and I'm hoping it will continue to be the case. Uh, We've always... you can remember when there were things called telephone operators. There were tens tens of thousands of those, and now there's like probably five in a whole country. But we all have telephone calls which are so much cheaper and, and which leaves us more money than to buy other things. So you don't want to keep jobs around that have become obsolete just to retain that person working. What you want to do is assist that person in being retrained or reeducated to enter that new labor force, that new uh, area, where, by the way, their productivity will be higher and they have much more potential to earn much more money. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that we all have to be willing to accept new technologies, but we also have to be willing to help our fellow Americans who are pushed out of work by those new technologies being brought to uh, to the market. We're talking to Michael Miller, Associate Professor of Economics at DePaul University, for just a couple more minutes here. Uh, what about this, Michael? I hear that the unemployment is low, but it's not like everybody has a great full-time job. It seems like a lot of people are cobbling together. The reason unemployment is low is because everybody's scarfing up every part-time job they can take as well. And those aren't great mm-hmm. jobs necessarily. Um, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, they're not. But you see, in many cases, part-time jobs are not intended or not in any way developed or designed to be the the sole breadwinner from a house for a household. Uh, I've, I've I've often asked people when I've done presentations outside the university uh, when it comes to work, and you hear that people are working part-time. Is it because that's all they can find, or is it because that's what they want? And most people respond to me. It's because they can't find full-time work. Everybody wants full-time work. And it turns out that's just not 
the case. Believe it or not, 80% of all the people who work part-time want to be working part-time. They are maybe uh, senior citizens who have retired from their full-time gig, and they just want to go and, and just be active at work at, say, the Home Depot or something. And, you know, their, their skills as a carpenter, they can talk about it during the weekends, and they can have the whole week to themselves. Or you have uh, stay-at-home parents who, once the kids go off to school, they can go work for four or five hours. They don't need the fringe benefits because their spouse may have those free, those fringe benefits. So the... Part of a vibrant labor market is this part-time uh, group of workers that is the workers are brought into the market because the market, in a sense, will provide them mm-hmm. employment under the terms that they, they, have to, they, they have to, you know, bring to the market. And I, I, I don't see that as a weakness. I see that as a strength that you can have full-time work, part-time work, and the part-time workers eight times out of ten are going to be completely happy with having this particular arrangement. Michael Miller from Bahrain, uh, the DePaul University Associate Professor of Economics, uh, helping us out today. Enjoy the weather, enjoy your stay, and uh, safe travels, Michael. Well, thank you very much, John. Hope to talk to you again in the future. When Trust Business Lunch, Ken Tooman joins us from LendingTree.com, a senior analyst there. Hey, Ken, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hi, John. Doing well. Talk to me a little bit about interest rates. Talk to me a little bit about what you're talking about. Well, um, we, uh, you know, it's tax time and this is a tax season and uh, Lending Tree, we did a uh, a little tax survey and and to see what people's attitudes are towards taxes and and what their plans are for their refunds and or if they're going to get a refund and some interesting uh, uh, pieces of data in the survey. What's surprising to you? I'm going to guess that most folks don't like taxes. Yep. <laughs> well, first of all, I think even 28% of Americans didn't even know that tax day this year is April 18th. So that's an important thing for people to know. And um, uh, quite a few of them, 18% thought it was later than April 18th. And that's a little dangerous. You don't want to be uh, in that in that camp. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I, I noticed from your survey, too, more than a third of Americans are relying on their tax refund this year. What are they doing with that money? How or why are they counting on it? Well, um, there, I think uh, with more people are, um, you know, in me, a lot of people, of course, live paycheck to paycheck and uh, and um, and have built up credit card debt has, has gone up quite a bit this year. So um, I think a lot of them are probably using or needing that to pay off that debt. So, um, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of that, a lot of people um, relying on that refund. Interesting, though, it's actually fewer, fewer people relying on that refund this year as opposed to previous years. Um, and we think more people are probably back to work. That's probably helping things a little bit compared to previous years. Do you have a number for what the average income tax return is? Um, well, the um, for the average, I mean, for the refund, yeah, or for the well, I mean, the refund. Um, um, I don't have the specific average, but I can say that um, uh, most people are um, 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 actually. Well, I think thirty-four percent actually expect to receive less than one thousand in refund. Thirty-nine um, percent expect to be more than a thousand. 
So it's a pretty good chunk of change that a lot of people are expecting um, for their yeah. refund. I guess uh, the, the the financial advisors say if you're doing it right, you don't get a refund. You break even. Better yep. to have had that money in play rather than waiting for the government to pay you back, right? Yep, because you're basically giving the government a, uh, a tax-free loan there. Um, so it's better to um, do your withdrawing, you know, set your um, your how much you can withhold um, early. We'll try to be accurate with it and um, and keep that money, you know. Um, and then especially now with um, higher rates on, um, on deposit accounts, it makes sense to keep more of that money and um, and then put it into your savings account rather than sending it to the government through the year. So yeah. it definitely makes sense to uh, to get that set right. Well, this year is different than last year and the year before and the year before. You just weren't for several years now. You were not getting a return on T-bills and I-bonds or certainly passbook savings accounts. And so the idea that you are uh, lending the government that money and – they give you your fifteen hundred dollars back at the you know in the following spring. To me, it was never such a terrible idea because most of us would have spent the fifteen hundred if we had it in our pockets. And trying to sort of zero out your taxes is kind of a funny bit of math. And if you get it wrong, you end up owing. So I've never faulted people. I've always thought I was I was always happy to see a little bit of a return coming. And and now that you can get. Four percent or five percent on your money—that's that's good, but um, it, it's not that much on the on the amount that we're talking about. So I'm—I know that the the science of it is what you're saying, but I think the truth of it is, people are—I've th- never heard somebody get a return and go, "Oh darn, I shouldn't have given the government this money for twelve months." You know? Right. It's better to play safe, especially if you know you don't have a. You <laughs> on that for uh, paying bills or definitely where you have money and you, and you have to uh, find money. Uh, hold on a second, Ken. You know what? We're going to cut it right there and we'll resume this interview either later today or another day. But thanks for what you've got so far for us. It's 1242 on WGN. com is where you can find Ken Tooman and an analysis of that. He's a senior industry analyst. Let's keep rolling on the Trust Business Lunch. We've got more business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. A group of developers has unveiled plans to turn LaSalle Street office buildings into apartments as part of Chicago's LaSalle Street Reimagined initiative. Five teams of developers are vying for taxpayer help to revitalize the Loop Corridor. Crane says they presented their plans last night for six different projects worth about $1.1 billion, including 2,100 residential units. City of Chicago is offering subsidies to turn vacant offices into apartments. One project at 30 North LaSalle would include 432 units. One at 208 South LaSalle would include 280 units. Another at 135 South LaSalle would include 430 units. One at 111 West Monroe could see 349 units. 
all of the projects set aside so-called affordable housing as well. A new state-of-the-art biomedical research hub is coming to Chicago. Northwestern University, the University of Chicago, and the University of Illinois have been selected by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. The new hub will develop groundbreaking technologies for studying human tissue to improve the understanding of inflammation, which could lead to new treatments. The initiative is operated and mostly funded by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan. I'm Steve Krasanich, and that's your Trust Business Minute. Business of food now. Here's Steve Alexander. Mm-hmm. And happy Friday. We're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. On the phone is... Mark Schleusener, and I'm the Illinois State Statistician for USDA NAS, the National Agricultural Statistics Service. Mark knows his numbers, and Illinois is number one again. Yes, uh, pumpkin production is number one in Illinois, and I don't know how many years in a row, but many years in a row. And the 2022 numbers also show Illinois is at or near the top in some other crops. Most of the publicity on Illinois agriculture goes to corn and soybeans, so let's give some love to the vegetable crops. For sweet corn, that's processing and fresh market. Illinois is number nine. Uh, For snap beans, number five. Illinois is the number four hog state, and it's been that way for a while. One category Illinois has fallen down in is cattle. Uh, We recently published our cattle estimates, and Illinois is 30th. Actually, Illinois is at a record low of one million head of cattle in the state. And the main reason is the soil is good enough. It's better to grow crops in Illinois than run cattle on pastures. For the big commodities, corn and soybeans, the land of Lincoln is number one in the nation in beans and number two in corn right behind Iowa. But county by county. The top five counties in the whole country for corn production. The top five were all in Illinois. McLean County was number one in the U.S., then Iroquois, Livingston, LaSalle, and Champaign. And for soybeans? Illinois had the top 11 counties in the country. Led by Piatt County with an average of 74.2 bushels per acre. Mark is also involved in the Census of Agriculture, and as of now, 51% of the forms have been returned or completed online. And if you haven't done yours because you you don't want the government all up in your business? First thing I would say is every individual report is confidential by law. It can't be, you know, harvested by the IRS or something like that. The data have special protections within the law. Easy peasy to do. Agcounts.usda.gov. From the farm to your belly, today's National Cold Cuts Day. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. On the Wintrust Business Lunch now, let's kind of get you ready for St. Patrick's Day. Even though that's, what, two weeks from today, Siobhan McKinney is the owner of Chief O'Neill's, one of the standard stops for really starting a week from, I guess, today. Siobhan, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So tell me about your pub, first of all. What's the story, and who is Chief O'Neill? Oh, yes, yes. Um, well, uh, Chief O'Neill actually was, uh, he was born in County Cork, Ireland, and um, uh, at the age of 17, actually, his family uh, wanted to send him off to the priesthood, and, and on his way to see the bishop, he uh, took a different turn and uh, ended up going uh, and uh, running away to sea, and uh, uh became shipwrecked in the in the Pacific and eventually ended up in San Francisco and uh, made his way down to Chicago around 1870. Um, uh, he, uh, he uh, actually, our interest in Chief O'Neill, he did become the superintendent uh, in Chicago uh, and spent 30 years on the police force. 
But uh, our interest in Chief O'Neill is uh, he devoted much of his private life uh, to his uh, intense, intense passion for the traditional music of Ireland. Um, and he saw that uh, tradition, which was oral at the time, it had never been written down. And due to the famine and people having to leave their homeland, he saw that this tradition would be lost. And so he spent actually pretty much all of his private life uh, writing down tunes, collecting tunes from different musicians around the world. And he's actually seen as the, the savior of Irish music. Um, these books that he compiled, uh, students in Ireland and all around the world today uh, learn from his books, and the majority of his collections actually are on display down at the uh, Notre Dame uh, Library. Huh. <clears throat> maybe, yeah, that's, so, maybe that's part of the reason why you guys are regarded as one of the top 10 Irish pubs in the world, right? Uh, yes, I, I think it helps. It helps. <laughs> and uh, we want to also give a thumbs up to uh, Time Out Chicago naming us the number one Irish spot. Uh, so we appreciate that this year. Um, both my husband and I play, play music as well. So uh, we uh, do like to honor Chief O'Neill and everything that he did for the music, uh, for his homeland, and for the people of Ireland. And, uh, and so we do bring a lot of the um, musicians out from Ireland and bands. Actually, we're kicking off our, our uh, 8 a.m. music session uh, on March 11th, Parade Day, with bands from Ireland, actually. So, um, yeah, we, um, we, we obviously admire what he did. It was quite, he was quite a visionary, and uh, we're just here to um, help with that. So it's kind of a festival at 3471 North Elston in Chicago. That's Chief O'Neill's. We're talking to Siobhan McKinney. And I'm looking at the schedule. So it says here, Friday, March 10th, fish fry, all you can eat, fish and chips, 4 to 10. And then you guys, March 11th, uh, have the uh, downtown parade. Uh, There's um, from 8 a.m. Music starts at 9 a.m., opens at 8 a.m., the music starts at 9 a.m. on March 11th, um, and yes. but but St. Patrick's Day is on the 17th, isn't it? Isn't the following Friday? <laughs> it is. It's the following Friday. Um, you know, in the city, uh, you can only do parades uh, on Saturday, so uh, it's always on the Saturday before uh, uh, the, the St. Patrick's Day, so um, you can do parades on the Saturday, so... We just don't get one good day. We get two generally, uh, except every seven years, which is next year. Both the parade and St. Patrick's Day will be on the on the same day, so that'll be I that'll see. be quite a, a turnout. So then, what happens there? You got the big heated tent and all that, right? We do, yeah, the heated tent, and um, that's going up as we speak. Uh, we uh, can accommodate you know three to four hundred people out there. It's general admission for the first floor, so guests can come on in. Uh, and we have the pub area. Uh, the, all the music will be in the dining room on our main stage. Uh, uh, more libations and uh, food is in the tent. So general admission, you can just come on in. And then for those guests who would like a little bit more relaxed atmosphere, we do have our second floor dining room. And you can go onto our website at chiefonealspub.com and, and make a reservation on there for our upstairs dining room where you would have table service. Um, yeah, music will be going on all day. Every two hours, we have a different act. Uh, some of the best um, musicians uh, from Ireland and musicians uh, here in Chicago, from like Chicago Wheel to Steam to Baltena, the Academy. Um, you know, you just got to get your green on and come on in, eat, drink, and be Irish. Do you remember St. Patrick's Day as the starting of the pandemic? That's really the, I think, benchmark for a lot of people in their minds. Yes, 
absolutely. Um, we were yeah, closed down uh, just a few two years ago, and um, since then we've been thinking a little bit about, you know, uh, St. Patrick's Day and Chief O'Neill, and this year actually we're going to do, uh, we're starting off now our inaugural walk on March 11th at 10 a.m. at Chief O'Neill's. We're actually going to walk down to Brands Park. So when we opened Chief O'Neill's several years later, uh, in looking at one of his books, we see a poster and we come to realize that actually Chief O'Neill himself used to walk up and down past our door uh, on his way to Brands Park, which is a four blocks south on Elston Avenue, just below the firehouse. And there he would have his annual picnic, um, plenty of music, Irish sports. And so we thought, um, you know, being close to two years into the pandemic, we had time to do a little bit more reading and we see this poster and we thought time that we do our own little walk. So come on out on March 11, 10 a.m., uh, walk down with us to Bruns Park, and then by the time we get back, I know we'll be really thirsty. <laughs> so this is the inaugural <laughs> walk. This is a new twist, huh? A new twist, yes, yes. So, um, again, we just want to, you know, uh, pay respect to him and what he did. And, I mean, he loved the neighborhood, obviously, and loved Bruns Park, and it's right there by us. So we're inviting everybody in the Avondale neighborhood and all over the city. Uh, but we are located in the Avondale neighborhood, uh, 3471 North Elston. Uh, nice. So, yeah, we invite people to come on over. Okay, so that's um, this coming Friday. If if I'm doing it right, I order what? What do I eat? What do I drink? Well, come hungry. <laughs> you have to come early if you want to drink all day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I, well, you've got quite a variety. Uh, we, of course, got our famous fish and chips. You have our shepherd's pie. Everybody goes to the corned beef and cabbage, the vegan sandwiches. Uh, actually, our Irish curry is very popular, believe it or not. And, of course, we have the traditional bangers and mash. Uh, so, um, you know, you have to come for a few days to try everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Siobhan McKinney is the owner of Chief O'Neill's, and you just heard 3471 North Elston. It's an all-day affair starting next week. ChiefO'Neillspub.com yes. is the website. Well, we wish you good weather and good company. Thank you for your time, Siobhan. Oh, thanks for having me. We hope to see you soon.